couple of thoughts that I wanted to throw at you. This was ruminating in my brain all week. So just before we dive into that section of 1 Corinthians, I wanted to share something that became very real to me as I visited and as Joy and I visited with a couple of people this week. God knew about 2020 before it was 2020. He knew all that we would be going through well before we started experiencing it. And I'm grateful for that. Our study in 1 Corinthians, in fact, was planned months ago before the pandemic caused so much chaos and confusion. It's encouraging to know that God knows exactly what we are going to need in the future and that he makes preparations so that he can supply exactly what we need. I've seen that so true in so many ways through the pandemic, including scripture after scripture, which was planned in advance for the season that we're now going through together. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for a God who sees ahead so that he can present just what we need in terms of a gospel, the gospel of grace as well. It's reminded me that we all need God's grace every single day. We need to remind each other of God's grace. We need reminders that we are recipients of the gospel of grace. We need to continue sharing that gospel of grace with other people as well. You see that from Paul especially. So where do you worship? This took me as well. Some of my ruminations took me to that scripture. Our name kind of comes from this passage, the church name, Living Water Community Church, because Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well, uh, asked her for a drink of water. She's thinking, who are you to be asking for a drink of water? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. That just doesn't happen like that. But Jesus was using it, this reach opportunity, to build a bridge with this woman who became very instrumental in reaching all the people in her area for Christ. And she was saying, trying to kind of redirect him a little bit from his line of reasoning in the discussion he was having with her, she says, well, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain and probably pointed to one that she was near, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus wants to redirect it back onto exactly what the truth of that discussion needed to be. And he said, well, yeah, that's true. And your ancestors worship what they did not know, but we worship what we do know. And then he says, and this is great, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. And I think that a modern paraphrase of that could perhaps sound like this. A time has now come when the true worshipers will worship from their homes via Zoom, still worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Isn't it good to know that if we're not on this mountain or that mountain or in a school that we normally rent or in a church building, we can still worship. We're still the church. And I know that some of us are growing so stinking Zoom weary <laughs> because it's different and it's hard to remain as engaged and it's not the same level of excitement that you feel when you're with brothers and sisters in the same space. And yet, here we are. But God knew this was going to happen. And so he's been paving a way for us, giving us exactly what we need, when we need it. And I suspect we're all going to have a much greater anticipation of getting back together when that school finally opens itself back up to us and when we're able to get back into the same actual physical space once more. It's going to happen. <laughs> I see lots of signs of hope on the horizon. Joy and I listened to a couple of different people from different countries who have been doing synopses of what they've discovered through peer-reviewed scientific articles related to the pandemic. There's so many signs of hope that we're going to get past this. 
and this will be temporary. We'll look back on 2020 and we'll remember, hopefully, that it showed us how much we need to be the church and how much we need each other and what a joy it is when we can gather, when we can sing at the tops of our lungs without worrying about infecting somebody. <laughs> it's going to happen. Let's dive back into 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. Oh, one more uh, little word to pass along about that. One thing that I can recommend to you is what we've seen in our fellowship time following our services that a couple of you have already done. I've noticed that we've got Heather and Bill and little baby David meeting together in the same house with the fields because Richard and Lydia are sort of a tribe with them. So they've been sort of cloistered together. They know they're safe. They know they're clean. They wash their hands a lot they're okay. So we've been developing these little tribes, and that may be one way for you to start inching back into being with other people. Maybe you can make arrangements to go to somebody else's house and participate in worship online, but with other people. That way we'll have several tribes in place so that when the time comes and we can gather together, we can sit with our tribes and be socially distant from the other tribes, but still in the same space, but not to feel like we all have to be 10 or 12 feet apart from everybody. Sound like a good plan? I am imagining all of you where you are right now. I can imagine kids running around living rooms and the parents trying to listen, but you're having a hard time. I know it's tough. Hang in there. God bless you. I love you for being the church. Keep being the church. We need each other, even if it's online. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this time verses 19 through 23. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed to be flexible in a method, but you had the same objective. For example, I worked uh, as an intern for a few months in the seminary where I was getting my master's in Texas. And uh, it was a large seminary. It's the largest Protestant seminary in the world. And so there are about 5,000 students. And we were trying to collate a large packet of information. And it was thick, about an inch thick per packet. And all the packets were going to be all these incoming students. And there were on campus probably 2,500. So this was a big job. There were about 15 of us working in the communications office, including all the secretaries and part-timers, student uh, part-time help. And we got everybody on board that afternoon. We went into a big conference room. They had all these stacks of paper all around a series of long tables that had been set up so that it just looked like a big, broad area filled with this information. And it seemed a bit overwhelming. Now, because somebody had done this the previous year, as we know in evangelical circles, if you've done something three times in a row, it becomes holy writ. And you have to do it that way from now until kingdom come. Can I get an amen? <laughs> so somebody was telling us, these are the steps that have to be taken. And they started telling us, you stand here, you stand there. So we were actually starting with a packet at the beginning of the, of the packet, putting the last uh, the piece of paper, the document on the bottom of that stack. And then we would step over to the next one, put the next piece of paper on it. And that meant each one of us were walking all the way around the room every time we did a packet. And one of us, I'd like to say it was probably me because I'm coming up with some pretty good ideas, but I, it wasn't me. I was afraid to speak up. Somebody else did, fortunately. And they said, you know, we could save a lot of effort. And if each of us would just stay where we are, we can put our piece of paper on there and just hand the packet to the person next to us. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so simple? 
And yet there were some people in the room that thought, no, we have to do it the other way. That's the way we've always done it before. And so they said, won't it get things out of order? And somebody who was very wise said, let's do one and I'll show you that it's identical to the other because they needed proof. They couldn't visualize what was going on. So we did, we practiced it, took our paper, put it on there, handed it to the next person, they handed it and so on. They said, it's just like you were walking around the table, but without the walking. And the one who had raised the objection went, oh, yeah, I guess that's probably better, huh? <laughs> so we changed our method. It was the same objective. And the message was completely the same because the documents were the same documents. So that didn't change. But sometimes we need to understand that there may be more than one way to tackle a certain thing and still come out with a really good outcome. That's Paul's point to us in this passage of Scripture. Which brings to mind some of the ways that I've known some people who were given the gospel. The methods were very different. For example, I know a couple of people, including my neighbor and friend when I was in elementary school, we used to do sleepovers together and keep our parents up late at night because we'd be playing hockey in our bedroom at 10 o'clock. But Bobby went with us to a crusade, one of those evangelistic meetings in a huge stadium with Billy Graham. And that's where he first met Jesus Christ. I know some other people who went to revival meetings and they met Christ because a person with a real gift of speaking the truth about the gospel came as a revival speaker. And that's how they came to faith in Christ. I know a small number of people who actually came to faith in Christ because of a tract or a pamphlet. One of those persons was one of my own kids. Their aunt, my wife's sister, had given a little tract to one of our kids and our kid read that in the room and came in and said, um, I need to do this. And Joy said, do what? They said, I need to pray this prayer. I need to accept Jesus Christ. So it happens. I mean, we had been presenting Christ to that child, of course, and they had been raised to pray at mealtime. They'd been to church with us. But the first time that that child actually got it was reading a tract. I know some other people who met Jesus through being in a small group Bible study. A couple of them were on campus because they had campus ministers like Christian Challenge, which we help uh, partner with in a small support. And I appreciate the fact that these people would go into these dorm rooms and hold Bible studies and allow lots of questions and they would look things up together. So I know some people who came to Christ that way. And I know one guy who came to Christ in one of our own small group Bible studies. And when we asked for a volunteer to lead the final prayer after we'd gone through the book of Mark together, this guy, who was not yet a believer, raised his hand and said, I'd like to pray. And in that prayer, he gave his heart to Christ. It shocked all of us. God works in mysterious ways. I know two different books. I've read one of them completely. The other it was so far above me scientifically that I didn't really get all the way through the book. But both of these individuals sought to write books that would disprove the gospel. And they were trying to disprove the resurrection and to disprove a historic Jesus. Both of those authors wound up finding Jesus Christ because of their discoveries and wrote books about it. Lee Strobel is one of them, and I've always recommended his books. I know another person who rented an attic bedroom from a family in a college town. And there were several very basic house rules for this college student when he was in this room and board situation. They said, you're going to be at the supper table immediately after I call for supper because I'm not cooking for nothing. You're going to sit around that table and eat it while it's hot. This was a good old strong Texas woman, and she talked like that. And she said, another thing is, we go to church in our house. And if you're going to be living under our roof, you can be going to church with us, and we're going to go to church 
every Sunday. Is that clear? <laughs> well, it was clear. That person was my dad, and he rented that attic room from Mom and Pop White. They helped lead him to a strong faith in Jesus Christ, and in turn, he started a new branch to the family tree. It was an amazing situation. I love that. I also know a lady in Israel who was our guide on the tour because you wonderful people at Living Water sent us on a tour there. She was married, got divorced. That was like anathema in her Jewish heritage and background. She didn't have a place, she didn't have a people. She wound up getting diagnosed with cancer. She thought, well, people have always told me growing up that if I go to a Christian church, I'll die, that God will strike me dead. She said, I'd actually heard that. And I thought, well, what better way to go out? I have nothing to lose. I'm gonna to go to a Christian church. I've got cancer. I don't have a family anymore. So she walked into a Christian church. She stood there for a minute. Nothing happened. She heard the gospel. She became a believer. She's a Messianic Jew, and she's a fulfilled Jew, she calls herself. It's amazing to see all the different methods that God has used to bring every single one of the people that I mentioned to faith in Jesus Christ. The methods were very different, and yet the objective was the same a relationship with a living, loving Lord who loves us enough to give his life in our place on a cross. That's the gospel. So the message is exactly the same. The methods may differ, but the objective, of course, is still the same as well. Just a quick question for you. What methods were employed for you to hear the gospel? I'd be curious to hear from each of you, and I long to hear your stories if I don't already know them. So when we get a chance to visit, I'd like for you to share that with me because I'm always intrigued to see the many different ways God uses to draw people into a relationship with himself. Well, the message, as we're going to see through Paul, is consistent. It never changes. He never wavers from the message of the gospel. The method is adaptable, and he's going to show us, especially today, that those methods can really change. The mission, he's going to be faithful to that mission, and it's going to be consistent in always reaching as many people as he can so that some might be saved. So let's dive into this passage right now. I'm going to read it for you, and it's going to be starting at verse 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Even though I'm a free man, he says, because he's picking up that thought that he's brought with him from the last couple of different chapters about being free in Christ, although I'm a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to that law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find a common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news, to share in its blessings. That may have sounded a little different to you because that was from the New Living Translation, and so it's rather in a colloquial tone. Let's pray for a moment as we dive into this passage, shall we? And now, O oh Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
In the authoritative name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I've told you this story before. I had written about it and uh, went back to it because it's such a good analogy. But uh, years ago, when we had a different wood-burning stove in our basement. A squirrel got into that stove somehow. It must have been a wild ride. <laughs> our kids told me that there was a squirrel in there. We eventually got the squirrel out. But every time I would try to think, if I could just speak this language of squirrel, it would be great because I could tell it, squirrel, it's okay. I'm your friend. I'm here to help you. If you'll just relax into my hands, I will carry you to safety. That didn't work, as you can imagine. It definitely did not work that way. We had to finally coax the squirrel into a box and we covered the hole in the box and we carried the squirrel to safety. But the more that it thought I was trying to harm it, the more it almost harmed itself. And there's the analogy. I feel like sometimes lost people have a, a misperception about this huge person of God. They're not sure what God might be like, but they've seen stories that misrepresent his character. And yes, he is powerful. And no, he's not safe, but yes, he is loving. And if they could only understand that God wanted to speak our language, if we were squirrels, he would have spoken squirrel. Instead, he became like us to identify with us in the incarnation. He gave up his godhood through the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, one of the Trinity. He identified with us. He spoke our language. He entered our culture. He became so much like us so that we could really clearly understand his motive, which was to save us. And he did so by even giving himself up for our benefit. Let me give you some background which helps us unpack what Paul is talking about in this particular passage. This came way back in 1998. It was a little, and I say little because it wasn't very long, two-page article in a missions quarterly magazine, Evangelical Missions Quarterly. It was called the C1 to C6 Spectrum. The C stood for uh, Christ-centered communities. It probably should have been CCC, but they condensed it. The C1 to C6 Spectrum by John Travis, which was not actually his name. It was a pseudonym, we found out later, of a husband and wife team living in an Asian culture that was difficult to reach because there was persecution going on of Christians at the time. Here are six different approaches that they noticed in their work there in that part of our world. And it created great controversy, but it also created a lot of deep thought about how people can reach other people for Christ and the methods that are employed in doing that. Number one approach was, if it was good enough for us, it's good enough for them. That would be seen as a church going to a foreign culture, and it would be replanting the exact same kind of church that we had back home. Like if you were to plant a church in Japan, and you were to be an English-speaking church in Japan so that nobody was speaking Japanese, we would sing the same hymns that we sang back in our church back home. We would have the same architecture if we built a church building. We would just be replicating what we knew back home, but in a different culture. That was the C1 approach. The C2 approach, let's at least learn to speak their language. Some people thought that was a radical idea, and even that started to radicalize the number of people who were being reached, because even though Christians were seen as a foreign entity, at least they were more easily understood. Because if we moved to, let's say, Japan or China or whatever, you name it, at least we would start to learn that local language so that when we we're speaking the gospel, people who are listening to that could understand that we were making some effort to connect with them, even though everything else we were bringing into their culture looked very much like our Western culture. C3 approach. 
They're starting to stretch into their culture a little bit more. Okay, we're going to introduce Jesus Christ to this culture, but let's include some non-religious cultural features. If they don't conflict with Scripture, if they're not consistently forbidden or clearly forbidden in Scripture, we're going to go ahead and incorporate some of these non-religious cultural features in our community of faith to make them feel more at home. But the locals there would still see converts from whatever religion was there, whether it was Hinduism or Buddhism or Sikhism or whatever, they would still see them as converts from a former something into a different state. But there was just more cultural context there. And then number four, see that there's this progression into becoming more and more cultural identified with the culture. Let's keep Christ central, but let's share him in the context of this culture. So this would be, the architecture would be much more indigenous. The songs, they would try to write uh, new contemporary songs in their own language from their own cultural influences. There'd be so much of it that would feel so much like their own culture, except that we would still be uh, preaching Christ and him crucified, death, burial, resurrection. The gospel would not change. And yet the locals would still see those Christians as being former Buddhists or former Hindus or former Muslims if they became Christians. This next one, number five, this is the one that created the most controversy and still does today. So much has been written on this. Volumes have been written from this two-page article. Let's add new meaning to this culture's worship practices and redeem the meaning of their practices so that people who know what the meaning is can be doing that practice. And in their mind, they know they're worshiping Yahweh, God, Jesus Christ is Lord. But the other people might not even know that because they're actually worshiping whatever. Can you see that there would be a real trouble with this in some people's minds? The locals might not even know that there's been a conversion because this person, for all intents and purposes, looks like they're still in that culture and still worshiping the other gods. Seems deceptive, because it is. <laughs> and I think Paul would agree, and I'm going to get to that toward the end of this message today. We're going to see why. I don't think Paul was about trying to establish uh, a C5 approach to missions. And then number six, and this we see happening in some countries where there's such uh, intense persecution of Christianity, including the fact that if somebody is known to be a Christian, if you converted, they'll kill you. And so this has to be under the radar, a, a secret church, an underground church that would say, okay, let's stay under the radar completely because we won't have a, a chance to be missionaries to our own people because they'll kill us. And then there's no missionary left. So those are in cultures where persecution is fierce and widespread. I watched a video about some people in a country that was completely closed. It was a communist country. And people used to go to open houses for real estate because the real estate broker would be there as a Christian opening these invitations to other people. And they would go out into a back garden somewhere and in secret, they would meet for worship. And they would even sing silently by mouthing the words to certain songs because they didn't want to be heard over the gate by somebody else walking by as being worshipers. But they were still worshiping because they knew it was important to gather together. That, I guess I should probably say too, if they could do that in a closed culture like that, don't you think maybe we could stretch ourselves for a few months and meet online, even though it's difficult? There's such controversy about, especially number five, in so culturizing 
a Christ-centered community that you almost lose the gospel altogether. You almost lose the identification with Christ because it's with the mouth that we're confessing and with the heart. All that goes into being a part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't help but sing and preach and talk about this conversion because you're so different. You want to share that with other people. So to keep it completely to yourself and never be able to show that you're different, it just seems contrary to the scriptures. Most problematic was number five, as you can imagine. People who are trying to defend a number five style of Christ-centered community would point to 1 Corinthians 9.20, this passage. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. But they would almost have to leave off that last part, to win the Jews. What does it mean to win the Jews? Well, it means to convert them so that they would become Christians because they would look different. They would also point to Acts chapter 15 as a start, looking at uh, sharing Christ with all nations, tribes, and tongues. And they would, of course, want to say, I'm all things to all people. But, Paul would say, but, so that people can be saved. So Paul's objective is this. He was always trying to reach people where they were, which is what he's talking about in this passage. But he's doing that so that he can win them for Christ. His aim was to become like them, to win them, not to become so much like them that people could never tell them apart. He wanted to win them to Christ with the gospel. He wanted them to move from where they were to where he was, which was in a different spot from the Gentiles or the Jews or the Judaizers or the God-fearers or the Greeks or the pagans or the sexually immoral or the swindlers or any of those trying to be like them enough to find a commonality, to build a bridge to them, but not to become so much like them that nobody could tell them apart from being a Christian. He wanted them to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul was criticized. We even see that in one of his letters to the folks in Galatia, the Galatian letter, both one and two. He was called a man pleaser by some of his critics back there in Galatia. And the reason that they probably said that is, we have to consider the source here, they were probably Judaizers. People who were trying to insist that if a Gentile comes to faith in Christ, those Gentiles would need to essentially convert to a neo-Jewish legalism so that they would be doing everything that the Jews were doing and to do everything by the letter of the law, including observing all of their legalistic observances, going to all their festivals, uh, observe the Sabbath, have the dietary restrictions, all of that stuff. So those were the people that you can understand from one sense that would be criticizing Paul because they said, oh no, you're becoming way too lax in your methods and uh, you're a man pleaser. Well, there are limits to Paul's flexibility in methods. The limits would be, he calls sin, sin. His hard words about sin and repentance are seen in lots of other letters that he wrote to different parts of the world back then. His hard words about sin and repentance resulted in softened hearts. I, I think I read just a couple of weeks ago from one pastor who said, hard words from the pulpit result in softened hearts. Soft words from the pulpit result in hardened hearts toward God. Paul never minced words when it came to sin. And you can look at the Romans road there, 323, uh, Romans 3, 10 through 18, Romans 623, Romans 5, 8. That's the Romans road. And it talks about sin. We're all sinners. All have fallen short. The wages of sin is death. And yet there's a gift of God, which is eternal life for those who would choose to repent and turn to him by faith. And they can appropriate that grace, which is freely given to us. And that's a wonderful gift. And then, of course, we, we can become new creations in him. All of that is a part of Paul's teaching as well. 
So there are limits to Paul's flexibility. He's not going to be so flexible that he would say, yeah, I'll overlook this stuff for the sake of developing a Christ-centered community. Maybe we'll turn this into a happy little camping group of people that look so much like their current culture that nobody can tell them apart. That was never Paul's agenda. You'd never hear Paul say, to the thief, I became a thief. To the swindler, I became a swindler. And of course, it would be ludicrous to imagine Paul saying, and to the sexually immoral, I became sexually immoral so that I could reach those who were sexually immoral. It would never happen. That'd be ridiculous. So obviously, when it comes to the gospel and sin and repentance and forgiveness and redemption and restoration, that was all on Paul's agenda. He adapted methodologically in order to reach but the message never changed. He became like a Jew to win the Jews. He could eat kosher if he wanted to. He could take a temple worship vow. We see some areas in the New Testament where he probably did just that. He could observe Shabbat. Shabbat, I don't know how they pronounce that. I'm not Jewish, I'm sorry. The uh, Sabbath, so that you could observe all the different kinds of things they would do on a normal weekend. He would do all that because he knew how. He was taught in the schools of Himaliel and Galel. And so he knew all that very, very well. He was a Jew's Jew, so he could fit in so nicely with them. But he was in a very unusual bridge-building kind of situation because when we, he was called out of that Jewish legalism, he was saved into a third position. He was neither Jew nor Gentile. Now he was a Christian, some completely different place that he wanted to invite other people to be with him in that place. When he says he became weak, he didn't mean that he became weak in becoming sinful. He was referring back to chapter 8 when he was talking about those who were weak in their consciences because they were afraid to eat meat that had been offered to idols. That's the context for this one. So he's saying, so I would be like those people back there, and I would become like them so that I would just refrain from eating meat that had been offered to idols. That's what he meant by becoming weak. He adapted in order to reach he became like the Gentiles in order to win the Gentiles. He could live as one not under the law because he was under Christ's law because Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law. He could eat meat offered to idols if he were with some of these folks and if it wasn't going to offend them or create a stumbling block for them. He could do these things because he was under Christ's law and there's freedom from those legalisms under Christ. So he didn't feel any dichotomy with that. He felt that if he was trying to reach this group, and if he was building a bridge by doing these things, enjoying their cultural affectations that didn't apply to anything that was forbidden in Scripture, he could do that with them so that he could draw them into that third position of being under Christ. But love was the motive for all of those things. He was willing to adapt methods because he loved them and he loved God and, and God loves these people enough to die for them. So Paul wanted to share that with them. Culturally and subculturally, Paul did that so well. To the Jews who lived under the law, he loved them and he showed them Christ's love. To the Gentiles who didn't live under the Jewish law, he loved them. He wanted them to know God's love. To the God-fearers who were starting to kind of shift a little bit in their focus, and they were starting to become more like the Jews, even though they were Gentiles. They had embraced Jewish style worship. He could love them too. He wanted to love every one of these groups of people because love was the motive. For missionaries today, reaching Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists or postmoderns or agnostics or atheists or anyone in need of what only Jesus can provide, love 
is still the motive. And we know it's the motive because God hasn't changed. The message is always the same. Love is always his motive. And we need to love people enough to get into their world and into their subculture, not so that we can mix our messages, but so that we can show them how much we're identifying with them and show them the love of Christ the way Paul did to his audiences back there. For God to use the right method to reach us, he identified with us. He entered our culture. He spoke our language. If we were squirrels, he would have spoken squirrel. Sometimes we act squirrely, depends on how much coffee we've had. He lived as we lived so that we could truly understand his motive, and his motive is love. People have a hard time with that. Some people, even in the Ravi Zacharias study that uh, I just finished with another small group, there was one person in there who said, I couldn't understand when I started hearing about God dying in our place. Why would he do that? It seemed completely unbelievable to me that God would come to earth and die in my place. It, it just didn't make sense to me. But it was so intriguing that I couldn't get it out of my mind. And it kept guiding me to research more and look into that and to find out what would cause a person to do that. I'll tell you what, it's love. The message never changed. Jesus never changed his kingdom message. Did you notice that? Jesus didn't have several different messages like politicians today who can alter their message depending on which group they're speaking with. The message is consistently firm. He stayed on message because he is the way and the truth and the life. Folks, I'm telling you, we can't put our faith in politicians to save us or to save our nation. We can do the very best we can to prayerfully Allow God to show us scripturally which things will cause us to want to vote for somebody. I wish there was somebody way different that I would want to I'd vote for Jesus Christ if he'd be the president, but I don't think he's running. And yet, we need to trust Christ for everything that's going on in our nation right now. He stayed on message because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Like with the woman at the well, that Samaritan woman, when he's saying to that woman, there's going to come a time, and there has come a time, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Why could he say that? Because he is the truth. <laughs> of course he could share that with her. And that's what's still happening today. All over the world, people are still worshiping in spirit and in truth, regardless of what's going on in their government at the time. Because the message never changes. Jesus is the only way. And I've just put three of probably a dozen good reasons why we can show scripturally that Jesus is the only way. He's the only way because he's the only one to come to earth and return to heaven. He's the only one who lived a perfect human life. Even though he was tempted in every way as we are, he overcame temptation and he was sinless. Also, he's the only one to fulfill all the law and the prophets. Not only the scripture in Matthew 5.17 is a good one for that. You can read the whole book of Hebrews. And it shows so many ways how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's king. He's the priest. He's all those things and more to us. We can see that Paul adapted in very much the same way that Jesus adapted. Paul is just emulating Christ when he's adapting to cultures and subcultures. Paul's no longer a Jew attempting to live under the law. He's a new creation in Christ living under the new covenant. He's willing to flex in all directions, not just both directions, Jews and Gentiles, but Jews, Gentiles, Judaizers, God-fearers, pagans. 
to flex in all directions to reach as many as possible so that some might be saved. His objective versus his methods. His objective is to win people in every culture. He doesn't want to leave them where they are. Same as God. God doesn't want to leave you where you are. Isn't that good to know? I'm glad that God doesn't give up on me, that he didn't want to leave me in my sinful state. He wanted to draw me into a relationship with him, even though he knew I was going to continue to fall flat on my face and to sin, but knowing that he will continually forgive me of those sins, and he still does, because there's that transformation that's still going on. Eventually, eventually, for all of us, he who began that good work in us will be faithful to complete it, then we'll be fully formed in Christ. We'll look so much more like him, and then there'll be that wonderful glorification. Now it's the sanctification process, but there'll be that glorification time. It's going to be glorious. For any one of you who've been struggling because you, you still feel like there's guilt in your past, God still forgives, and he will forgive anything that you've done, anything. He wants to bring us into relationship with him and to rekindle that relationship so that we have renewals, recommitments constantly. He wants to reach people who are not Christians also so that they will eventually become Christians. Not a C5 cloistered group that doesn't look any different from the culture around them. Folks, if you're a non-Christian and you felt a tug in your heart by the Holy Spirit, I just want to let you know God wants you to join with other Christians so that you can have a community of faith that cares about you and wants you to grow just the same way that everybody else has grown. Not because we're perfect, but because we're saved sinners who were given tremendous grace and forgiveness by a God who loves us that much. He loves you that much as well. That's why approach number five is problematic. Paul didn't want to create happy little groups of people who still appeared to be exactly the same as the culture around them. All of the cultures that he reached had to, in turn, learn to adapt their methods so that they too could help reach sometimes into their own cultures and sometimes being pulled out of their cultures to become missionaries to other cultures, just as Paul had become. Converts from cultures and subcultures learn to flex their methods as Paul does, but for the purpose of reaching the lost so that they can be saved. And he's not afraid to use terminology like that. We've got some postmoderns who get tied up in semantics and language, and they get, they get a little antsy when we use terms like lost and saved. Folks, I'm just here to tell you, it's a good Bible terminology. Those of us who have felt lost, we know what lost feels like. It's awful. And there are lost people who just desperately need to be saved. And if you're lost, God wants to find you, and he wants you saved. He wants you to snuggle up tight in his loving, gracious arms, and he wants to pour out his grace upon your life so that you can feel completely supported by him who loves you enough to die in your place. An example of converts in a closed country. This is something that started to show me how methodology can be different and how it can be adapted to different situations. Late 70s, I was still in college. I took a summer off to go travel with a group. I'd auditioned for this group. The, the founder of the group was really visionary. He was like a modern, modern day Apostle Paul. Cam Florio was his name. This group had numbers of touring musicians so that there were a number of us. That I was a part of Tour In, so there must have had a whole bunch of us in the alphabet. And so there were that many groups being sent out all over not only the United States, but into a whole bunch of different countries 
for about six weeks each summer because he understood that there were closed countries in the world that were just starting to open up and he knew that some of them would not be open to things like the gospel message or preaching but they said concerts would be okay so he created this thing called continental singers and our job was to learn the music in a rehearsal camp and then tour and go out and preach the gospel, but by singing and playing it. I played trombone, so I didn't actually sing them. But it was so neat for me to go into a previously closed country. In one sense, we were preaching the gospel, but we were doing it through music. In one previously closed country, we got there and found out that they had a state church. And if you were PC, you would join the state church and you would sign a document that said, yes, I'm a member of the state church, and then you were okay. But if you were one of those outliers, one of those renegades who refused to sign on the dotted line and become a member of the state church, which was basically a dead church. And if they said, no, I true, I'm a true believer and I, I worship in spirit and in truth and I have to gather together with my fellow believers and we have to lift up the name of Jesus Christ because he's the only way. They were looked at sideways by the government and they were very often investigated. In that large city, in a European city, they had transformed an old beautiful opera house into a church. And we gathered together with our particular tour group, and we had a small band and 20 singers, and we sang and sang and sang. And when we would, the, the director occasionally would stop our band and choir and let the audience actually sing a chorus. Oh my goodness. It was resounding. Something like 2,500 people, including tiered balconies all around us singing stuff like this is the day this is the day that the lord has made they're just shouting it out and this is my commandment that you love one another that your joy may be full boom, boom, boom. and what a mighty god we serve bum, bum, bum. what a mighty god we serve and i love you lord and i lift my voice they were just resounding with praise and it brought tears to our eyes because we could see that these people meant what they were singing there were people back in the united states that were yawning and singing the same old hymns over and over again and yet here these people were willing to be investigated by their government because they couldn't help but sing i just can't help but singing the praises of jesus christ he saved me he brought me from death to life he gave my life meaning he is my life purpose now for eternity and these people really meant that so for me it showed me just a glimpse of what i think we see paul doing with these different cultures and subcultures and we're still supporting missionaries who are reaching into different cultures and subcultures and i'm glad we are and we need to keep doing that and here's the thing paul knew that there were idols in every culture there was idolatry from paganism that was creeping into the church he he writes about that Gentiles, there would have been some sexual immorality involved. There would be literally carved idols made out of wood that people would have in their houses and they would worship those things and he'd say, get rid of that stuff. Even in Jewish culture and legalism, legalism itself can become an idol if it becomes a substitute for the relationship that we should be having with a living Lord. I have to say it, political alliances can become an idol if we're not careful because we start talking about some candidate as though they're Jesus Christ. Whoa, let's be cautious, folks. There's only one Jesus Christ. 
let's be very careful about how we're talking about politics, especially in this contentious time. And whatever we say needs to make sure that we're keeping Jesus central in our conversation. Let's exalt Jesus Christ because ultimately he's the only one who's going to give us what we truly need for eternity. No matter what the culture is, people who place their faith in Jesus need to leave idols behind. Paul's aim was not to add enough Jesus to make it feel like Christianity. His aim was conversion. So let me ask you, bring it back to you again. If you're a Christian now, and I assume that most of us, maybe even all of us who are listening, I don't know for a fact, uh, are a Christian, did somebody flex their methods in order to reach you with the gospel? Looking back at the people who are really influential in your life, did you notice that they were flexing in their methodology to connect with you in some way, to, to build a bridge to you, to show you how much they cared about you so that you could understand how much God cares about you? I remember a Sunday school teacher who took me out to play billiards at a family billiards place. I know that, that sounds like anathema in the early Baptist churches where I grew up. They did that because they know I enjoy playing pool, but they did it in a safe setting. And they did something that to some other legalists might've been thinking, Ooh, that's terrible. You can't play pool. I mean, that's terrible. That's, that starts with P and that rhymes with T and that stands for trouble. Mm -hmm. But they did that because they wanted to build a bridge to me so that I could understand how much they cared about me. Hopefully somebody's done that to you to show you how much they cared as well. Have you experienced something in your life, if you're not a Christian, that made you think, oh, I see what this person's doing. They're trying to build a bridge to me. Hopefully, you haven't felt like they're doing it because they're like a used car salesman. Hopefully, that's not the case. I don't want to come across that way when I'm trying to build a bridge in relationship with somebody who's listening to me. I want them to know that I genuinely care about them. They're not a project. <laughs> they're a precious soul created in the image of God who loves them. And I want to connect with them because I care about them. And I care enough about them that I want God to be able to get into their life the way I know God got, got into my life. That's my motive. And if you are perhaps a non-Christian, you're not quite there yet. Maybe you've been exploring it. Maybe you've had more questions than answers. Have you experienced anything in your life that made you think that maybe there just might be a God? Thinking back about a couple of experiences, did that thought just pop into your brain at some point and you think, wow, was that a, just a really weird coincidence or could there be more to it than that? I'd like to plant that seed of hope in your mind to say, I'd be willing to bet if I were a betting man that that was God at work. I think sometimes that we, we just kind of chalk up as serendipity or Maybe coincidence? It's not coincidence at all. I think God is using very different methods even today, perhaps even in the middle of a pandemic, perhaps even in the middle of a contentious political battle. He's using things that we might not even have thought of as methods to get through to us, to let us know, I love you. That's God's message to us. I love you enough to carry you to safety but quit fighting me. You're going to hurt yourself. Just relax. I want to speak your language so I can tell you how much I love you. If you're considering taking that step, I want to guide you 
I'll just guide you in a little sample prayer. It doesn't have to be exact. It just needs to be from the heart. But you can speak to God and you can pour yourself out to him and say, God, I need you. So let me guide you in a prayer. And if you'd like to say that kind of prayer, you can just repeat that after I pray it. And it could be silent if you'd like, or you can pray it out loud. It goes something like this. Dear God, there have been times in my life when I look back and I realize now, I see a lot of different times when I think, yeah, that was probably you trying to get my attention. And I, I realize that what this pastor has been saying is it's really striking a nerve with me. And I need you. I need forgiveness. I need to walk forward in my life knowing that there's some purpose because I've sensed that there's so much hatred around me and, and I don't like this world the way it is. It's not working so great. I need something that I can look forward to beyond this world, something that's bigger than this world, something that's more loving than what I experience in this world. And so I turn to you, God, please forgive me where I failed you, where I've sinned, where I've fallen short. Forgive me for that and thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you died in my place on a cross to pay for my sin. Thank you for that forgiveness and for taking away the guilt and the shame that I've been living with Help me to understand what it means to be your follower, to be your child, to be related to you, to develop a relationship with you. It's all brand new, but I, I want that. I, I really desire that. Help surround me with fellow Christians to help me understand how we can take these steps together. And thank you that I'm not alone, that I can walk together arm in arm with other believers who are on the same path, on the same journey. Surround me with the kind of influences that would help me put you first in my life because I want to build my life around Jesus Christ. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.